Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. We're going to be in 1 Timothy again. And if you're visiting with us, um, here's what we do as we gather for worship. As we work our way through books of the Bible, we believe that all of God's Word is inerrant and inspired and infallible, trustworthy and true to guide us and reveal to us what God wants us to know and how God wants us to respond. And so we just work verse by verse through books of the Bible. We've been in 1 Timothy uh, for about four weeks now. Um, And we're going to be in verse 8. We're going to start in verse 8. We're going to work our way through verse 11 this morning. And so I hope I've given you enough time to find 1 Timothy chapter 1 in your copy of God's Word or on your app. But here's what the text of Scripture says. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, a fellow worker for the gospel and a son in the faith to him. He tells him this. He says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which, with which I have been entrusted. This is God's word. And before we study it with any depth, let's pray together. Just ask the Lord to open our hearts and our eyes to see his truth and to receive it. Father, I do thank you for... Uh, allowing us to be in this place to sing your praises, to sit under the teaching and reading and singing of your word, to be together with brothers and sisters, to to see our children standing and declaring with their voices lifted up, great is your faithfulness. Father, we thank you for this church and we pray that you would continue to bless us and strengthen us and make us unified and keep us faithful and let us to be a, a light to the world. That's what you've called us to be, salt and light. And so I pray that this time of focused attention to your word and instruction in your word would do that very thing. Prepare us to be salt and light. Help us to understand this instruction regarding the law of God and help us to apply it in an appropriate way, in a way that is in accordance with the glorious gospel of our blessed God. Have your way with us, accomplish your purpose, and I pray you'd use me for that end. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever found yourself reading in the Scriptures? Perhaps you're reading in the Old Testament and you come away wondering, how does this Old Testament story connect with my current life as a Christian today? I know I've had those issues. I've asked that question many times. And, And Some of the stories in the Old Testament specifically, they provide for us a background of history. And that background of history just helps to ground our faith in an historical reality. Some of the stories serve different purposes, like revealing certain truths about God, about who He is and what He's like. Sometimes it's 
God is revealing truths about man, what is in our hearts and what we are like. Sometimes those stories are revealing things about sin and the nature of salvation and God's work to redeem his people. Some of those stories are teaching us these theological principles so that our faith today can be grounded in those theological principles that don't really change from the Old Testament to the New. Some of the Old Testament stories reveal patterns in people's lives that connect to our own human experience. It helps us to know that God knows what we walk through. He knows us even more deeply than we know ourselves. And some of the stories explore ethical or moral truths that God reveals to help us know right from wrong. But still there are some stories that we read and some events that happen in the life of God's people and, and they just loom larger than others. For instance, the, the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's one of those moments in the life of God's people that is referred to throughout the Scriptures. And we're not really sure at all places how it applies to us. Like, what was God doing with the law? What is God doing with the law now? What does it all mean? And so I want us to think a little bit about the scenario. I want us to go back a little bit into that event. What was going on in the life of God's people at the time when the law was given is that they had just recently spent 400 years in slavery. They had spent 400 years in Egypt, and their slavery was getting worse and worse and worse. They had spent 400 years in a, in a, in a land as slaves, and this land was filled with all kinds of idolatry and all kinds of a, a false sense of what is right and what is wrong, a false sense of gods and various things. And in the midst of their suffering and sorrow, they cried out to God, and God heard their cries, and in compassion, God was moved to send them a deliverer. And you probably know the story of Moses and how he became the leader of God's people in that particular instance. And, and God began to show himself powerful, not just to his people, but also to Egypt. He showed himself to be sovereign over every false god in Egypt, and he struck down the firstborn sons as a sign of his judgment against the sins of the world. And the only people who did not lose a firstborn child in that instance was his own people. And his people were specifically doing what God had told them to do. They were in their homes, and their homes were covered by the blood of a lamb. Sounds familiar, right? It should. And then after this event occurred, God leads them out into the wilderness. He, he fights for them. He leads them toward the promised land. And then three months after that, three months after this Exodus event took place, three months after all of this, they found themselves at the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai, and God did something incredible. God gave his people a set of laws that were meant to guide them as his people in the promised land that they were going to. And, and now that, that chronology is really important, and I'm going to show you why along the way. But the Ten Commandments are what we understand as the laws of God. Now, there are more laws. God expands upon those laws, but those are the, the foundation of biblical law, of biblical morality, and therefore, because they come from the Creator of all things, they are the foundation for universal morality. They reveal to us the heart of God. They reveal to us our own heart of sin. But we aren't always clear on how it applies to our lives right now. Over and over in the New Testament, we're going to see this, this confusion about where the law fits in our lives as believers. Some people taught 
and some people still teach, that the Ten Commandments are something like a roadmap to salvation. In other words, if you can you know, keep the law, if you can follow the law, if you could keep it perfectly, then you could, in a sense, earn God's love. That's what the Pharisees believed. And some teach that the law no longer applies. That's the position of those referred to as antinomians. They're anti-law. And they say that God's grace is all that matters and that the law is only a thing of the past. But what does the Bible actually say? What is Paul saying here in this passage that we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully? What does this mean? What is it all about? Well, Paul's trying to help Timothy understand the role of the law and how it is to function within the church and within the lives of Christians today. And so this morning, that's what we're going to learn, the law. And you can't understand all that the law pertains to in one sermon. So I'm going to focus in specifically on three things that we see in this passage. Number one, we're going to learn that the law is good. Number two, we're going to learn that the law reveals sin. And number three, we're going to learn that the law points us to Christ. So let's look first at the law being good. Paul says that right there in verse 8. Now we know, this is something that we know to be true. This is not up for debate. This is not up for discussion. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, Paul says we know that the law is good, and and in order to understand that, we do need to make sure in context what law he's talking about, right? So Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is a pastor in the church at Ephesus, which is one of the Roman provinces, and he's talking about law. Now, Rome was known as the seat of law within the Roman Empire, but Paul's not talking about Roman law here. And Timothy's in Ephesus, but Paul's not talking about, you know, the civil laws of Ephesus at this point. And he's not really talking about a man-made set of laws that were common in the church at that particular time. Paul is referring to the law of God, more specifically what we understand as the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments that have governed God's people since they were written on stone by the finger of God. And one of the reasons we know this is the way that this whole passage is structured. Now, I'll get to it, but I think that the Apostle Paul quite clearly has the Ten Commandments in mind when he lists out all the terms that he does here. But here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that the law of God is a good thing. The law of God has a positive place in the life of his people. The law is good so long as we understand how it applies. So long as we understand what God intended us to do with the law. He says, so long as we use it lawfully. Paul actually uses the word namas, which is the Greek word for law. He uses it four times in one verse. It's this really important thing. He keeps coming back to it. The law, the law, the law, the law. And this is not the only time that the Apostle Paul teaches us the right use of the law. He talks about it in Galatians. We read earlier from Romans 3. He talks about it in Romans 7. And and, and in the passages that the Apostle Paul explains the law, he helps us to understand the goodness and the importance of God's law in accomplishing God's purpose. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19, he asks the question, why was the law given? And then he answers and he says, it was given because of sin. It was given because of transgressions. In all these passages, Paul explains to us that God gave us the law so that we could see more clearly the problem that exists between us and God. 
God gave the law to show us that we all fall short of his standard of righteousness. God gave us the law not to show us how we could obtain God's promise through our effort. The legalist is wrong about the law. The Pharisee is wrong about the law. And if you've been taught that essentially Christianity is if you do all the good things, then God will love you, then that is a wrong application of the law. That's not why the law was given. It's not our roadmap to salvation. The law was given to show us what stands in the way of us obtaining God's promises, and that's our sin. That's what the law is here for, to expose and reveal our sin. The law reveals our sin by defining it and showing us just how much of a problem it is. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so he reasons, he says, the law is holy, the law is righteous, the law is good, if you understand why the law was given. It was given to show us our sin. In other words, the law is a reflection of the righteous standard of God himself, and when we look at ourselves in the mirror of God's law, we are confronted with the fact that we are not like God. God is holy and we are not. We fall short of his glorious standard as we learn in Romans 3. The law reveals that God is holy and it reveals that we are sinners who miss the mark. I don't know how you think about the law, but over and over again we're going to see the Apostle Paul, Jesus himself, and others reminding us that the law is good. It's good that we have the law. It's good that the the law was given to us. It's good because it exposes something that we desperately need to see. It confronts us with the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. The law puts a spotlight on our deepest problem. It it exposes just how sinful we are. And, And we might have a tendency to think of our sin as a small thing. It's just this little thing over in the corner. I can take care of it. All I really need to do is turn over a new leaf. I just need to take control of my life. I just need to get get right. Well, the law says, no, 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 you can't do that. Because you Your problem with the law is far greater than just a small problem you keep on a leash. We can't control our sin. The law reveals to us that we are liars because we don't tell the truth. The law reveals to us that we are thieves because we take what doesn't belong to us. The law reveals that we are murderers. And Jesus says if you hate someone in your heart, you've broken the the law about murder. The law is not just about behavior, it's about the heart. We are adulterers and idolaters, and the law reveals that at the deepest level. The law doesn't create these things in us. It simply exposes that our heart is filled with these things. And you're thinking, well, how is that good? Well, it's good because it shows us who we truly are. It doesn't let us hide behind the mask. It exposes who we are from God's perspective. And it shows us the depth of our problem, not just the superficial problems that we think we've got control of. That's what the law does. It exposes the depravity and sin within our hearts, and it exposes that that's the true problem. Jesus says uh, it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. Jesus says it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles you, it's what comes out of the mouth, because what comes out of the mouth reveals the true condition of the heart of man. The heart of man is the heart of our problem. And to be saved from sin and reconciled to God, we need a new heart. And guess what? The law can't give that to us. 
The commandments of God can't give us a new heart. It can't cause us to be born again. And part of what the law shows us in its goodness is what we truly are deep down and what we truly need deep down. Now, some of you may be familiar with the fact that within the Reformed Protestant tradition, there are, there are really three ways we look at the effects of the law, the, the importance of the law, the uses of the law, if you will. And the first is this, the law was given to God's people, it was given to Israel as a civil, with a civil function within society. It was to serve to limit and restrain evil within the, the camp, if you will. It was not given even to Israel to save them. God redeemed them by the blood of the Lamb. He, He brought them out of their slavery and then gave them the law afterward to show them, now that you are my blood-bought people, here's how you're going to live. Here's how you're going to love your neighbors. Here's how you're going to honor me. So that law has a, first, a civil function. Second, the law has an evangelical function in that it shows us our sin and it drives us to Christ. That's, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's using it in that way. And then third, the law actually does function in our life as believers to help us to know the will of God and how to live a faithful Christian life. The law is good so long as we understand the way that it is supposed to function. God's law shows his people how to live in relationship to him and how to create a just society. It shows us the standard that God requires and it shows us just how far we fall short of that standard. And this is what Paul is teaching here. The law is given to show us our sin, but it's also given to show us that we need a Savior. Let me give you an illustration. I've used this before. Some of you are new. Maybe you've never heard this before. But when, the, when you go to the doctor, let's say you're sick. Something's wrong. You don't know exactly what it is. And you go to the doctor, and the doctor's going to run all kinds of tests on you. They're going to try to diagnose what's wrong. They're going to look at your tongue, and they're going to take some blood, and they're going to check your breathing, and they're going to do all of these things. They may even do a CT scan. And then they're going to take all the results of all of these diagnostic tools and they're going to try to determine, based on all of that, they're going to look at other people, they're going to look at you, and they're going to say, well, based upon all of these things, we believe the problem is this. All of those tests are diagnostic tools to show you the problem. But you don't come away from a blood test thinking that the blood test is actually what cures you. The cure is what comes next. The diagnosis allows them to adequately and accurately say, this is the problem, now here's how we treat it. And sometimes we use the law in a similar way, or we should. It's the thing that diagnoses our problem, but sometimes people say, no, it's the thing that cures our problem. The law doesn't cure our sin problem. It simply shows us that we are, in fact, sinners. The law was given, in a sense, as a diagnostic tool to show us our need of a Savior. But what does the law reveal? When the law shows us these things, when the law puts its spotlight on our hearts and on our lives, what does it show? Well, that's what Paul talks about next in verse 9. It tells us not only is the law good in that it's this diagnostic tool that helps to reveal things, but what does it reveal? Well, it reveals the depth of our sin. Verse 9 says this, The law is not laid down for the just. It's given for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and then whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 
But Paul is clearly using the law in this instance, in that second use of the law, in that evangelical function to show us our sin. And he uses 13 different categories here, 13 different terms to expose those sinful behaviors and chosen personal identities that are sinful in the eyes of God. And then, just in case he missed something, he throws in that junk drawer term and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. It's like, we're not getting away from it here. But, but when we look at this list more clearly, I believe, without question, that this list is clearly reflecting to us Paul's understanding and application of the Ten Commandments. There's a profound intentionality in the words that he uses. First, if you go back and look at verse 9, the first six words, lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane, these terms reflect man's general sinful disposition towards God. They point out a heart of rebellion that all sinful human beings possess in our chief duty to God, to our Creator. These terms reflect the first table of the law. Are are you familiar with the fact that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, are broken up into the first table and the second table? The first table uh, law refers to those sins that we commit against God directly. You shall have no gods before me. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall not create or worship false idols. You shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That first table of the law is a reflection of our relationship to God directly. And that's what Paul is doing in all of these terms. He's talking about individuals, people, whose lives are defined by a rebellion and a rejection of God as creator. And and when he does this, he's helping us to understand something. The root of all human sin is idolatry. We put ourselves in the place of God. All human sin starts with our own rebellion and refusal to acknowledge the God who created us. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we break these laws when we refuse to submit to God's instruction and his lordship. We break these laws because we want to establish our own authority. We want to do what is right in our own eyes. We want to make our decisions about what is good and what is right and what is true. We want to decide for ourselves which fruit to eat rather than obey God, the one who made us. At at, at the root, that's all human sin, a desire to put ourselves in the place of God. And that's idolatry. Idolatry is not just an external problem. You can go all over the world today and you can see idols that are being worshipped in little statues and figurines. But idolatry is not just an external problem. It is primarily an internal problem. And there are particular cultural idols that we have to face all the time. Whether you see that or not, I hope you can, maybe after I explain some of it. Much of our cultural idols are seen when we take a good thing. Something within society, something that is a gift of God, we take a good thing and then we elevate that good thing, turning it into the most important thing in our life. Whether it be money or success or influence or sex. And we will take that thing and we will elevate it to where it becomes the most important thing in our lives. It's the thing that we protest for. It's the thing that we allow to define our very identity. That's, that's exactly what an idol is. We try and we make these things the entire goal of life. And the moment we do this, we have created an idol that rivals our creator in our hearts. 
In our hearts, we take good things, we make them the center of our lives, we make them our core identity, and then we look to these things to give us significance. We want these things to bring us joy, we want these things to bring us meaning, we want these things to bring us purpose, we want these things to bring us comfort, even salvation, but these idols will always let us down because they were never meant to bear the weight that God alone can bear. The most destructive idol that each of us has to confront is the idol we make out of ourselves. And I know this is not an easy thing to talk about. We don't, you don't see very many prayer meetings where people are confessing, yeah, I've made an idol out of myself again. But the Bible is being very clear to show us that we are our biggest problem. The problem is not that God has given us a law that is standing in the way of our happiness. The biggest problem that the Bible is helping us to understand is that we are standing in the way of our ultimate happiness in the Lord. We've made ourselves an idol, and look, we're not that awesome. I know we like to think we are, but we're not. But we do this all the time. We want to be in the place of God. We want to go our own way. We want to write the script of our lives. We want to decide for ourselves how we're going to live and what we're going to believe and which identity we're going to choose. And there's a powerful relationship I think you would all agree with this. There's a powerful relationship that exists between our behavior and what we understand as our core identity. We see this in many ways, but I truly believe that the language of the sexual revolution is a clear example of this. It's not enough for people to engage in what we would understand in the Bible clearly declares as immoral sexual practices, they quickly then take the next step and they embrace those actions as the core of their identity. I identify as this, or I identify as that. We don't always use that language, but within the sexual revolution of our day, that language is being thrown around all the time. When a person says that they identify as homosexual or transgender, they are claiming that the sexual actions they prefer determine their core identity. They're no longer a man or a woman who simply choose to commit certain sexual acts. They want those acts to define their very being. It's a strange thing, but it's It tells us about this relationship that exists between our behavior and our core identity. And this is just a form of modern idolatry. And the law of God reveals it as such. This is idolatry. You've elevated something in the place over the place that only God should have. Now, the second half of this list begins to identify certain actions that once again reflect the Ten Commandments. Let's look back at the text. Not only are we talking about those who are lawless, disobedient, ungodly, and sinners, and unholy and profane, but those who strike their fathers and mothers. Guess what they're doing when they do that? They're breaking the fifth commandment, which tells us that we are to honor our fathers and mothers. goes on and he says, those who murder, they're breaking the sixth commandment, which is you shall not murder. Those who are sexually immoral, including those who practice homosexuality. Now, this is interesting because the the Apostle Paul doesn't use what is typically referred to in the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery, but he does identify sexual immorality, and then he broadens it out because Roman culture was rife with homosexuality. He says, and especially this form of sexual immorality, men who lie with one another as with a woman. The only form of sexuality which the Bible blesses, which God blesses, is that which occurs between a husband and a wife. 
and every other form of sexual expression falls into a category that the Bible repeatedly calls sexual immorality. This is an immoral sexual act. And in this verse, Paul is actually doing something interesting. He's coining a term. He's creating a new term. He's, the, the term in the Greek is arsenikoites, which refers back to the law in Leviticus, which condemns homosexual practice. In Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20 and verse 13, he says that this is sin. When a man who lies with a woman as one, or who lies with a man as one who lies with a woman. He's using that phrase and he's turning it into a Greek term. He's coining a term for us to understand that the same thing that God condemns in Leviticus is to be condemned today. Homosexual practice is nothing new, and God has been clear from the very beginning that it falls outside the scope of what he blesses as a right expression of sexuality. Now he goes on. He he uses the word enslavers here. Enslavers are guilty of stealing, thus they're breaking the eighth commandment. And just so we can pull something else out of You know, the contemporary news story, the Palestinian terrorists who murdered and kidnapped civilians in Israel are guilty of an horrendous sin in the eyes of God. They are enslaving civilian populations for their own ends. We don't have to go to Harvard and ask the pro-Palestinian student groups whether or not that action is justified. The scriptures say, no, it's wrong, it's sinful. Liars and perjurers, he says, they're They're bearing false witness. They're breaking the ninth commandment. All of these behaviors that he's referring to here are a reflection of the law of God. And Paul is helping us understand they put us in a position to receive the judgment of God. God will hold us accountable for our sin. He is the just judge of all the earth who will judge all of mankind according to the standard of righteousness that he has revealed. See, the law of God reveals that deep down we've got a big problem that we can't fix. The law of God reveals deep down that we are desperately sinful. But the law of God doesn't leave us there. It has an evangelical function. It points us to the good news. It shows us our sin and then it draws us, it draws our attention to the remedy. Look back at verse 11. And actually, we're going to start back in verse 8 because when when you read verse 11, it almost seems out of place. It seems out of place because it's actually a continuation of verse 8. At the end of verse 8, obviously, there's a little comma there. And then when you get to the beginning of verse 11, you see that what came before it is surrounded by another comma. So you could read the verse this way, verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, skip to verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In other words, one of the good and lawful functions of the law is that it works in accordance with the gospel. It points us to Christ. The good news of the glory of our blessed God is the story of Christ coming to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. If you're here and you don't know what the central message of Christianity is, but you've got something in mind that relates to the law or something else, let me just make it as clear as I can. The good news of the Christian faith, the central message of Christianity, is that where we could not live a life that would earn us God's favor. Jesus Christ came in his love and he lived that perfect life of obedience to the law that we could not. 
And then he died in our place to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And then he rose from death to show that our faith in him is a, is a faith in a living Savior. One who conquered sin and death for his people. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our law keeping. Our hope is in Christ alone. And that's what the law is showing us. That we can't do this on our own because the problem that we have is far deeper than something that we can save and solve. We need a Savior, and that Savior is Christ the Lord. The law of God is not opposed to the gospel. It does not function apart from the gospel. It is not plan A to the gospel's plan B. The law and the gospel work together to reveal the plan of God for the salvation of his people and to provide for the moral guidance of God's blood-bought family. So if you hear nothing else, hear this. The law of God doesn't save us. It drives us to embrace the Savior, who is Jesus Christ. Now one more illustration. Um, Thinking about the law and its proper use. And Jeff's not here, so he can't give me any grief for using a Tolkien reference, but... (laughs) Some of you are familiar with The Fellowship of the Ring. It's the first book in the three-part series of uh, Tolkien's the, Lore, the, the War of the Ring. And, th- and in this book, there's, there's certain scenes that stand out. And one of those scenes is when they're at the Council of Elrond. Some of you nerds are shaking your head like, yeah, that's a great scene. Well, in this particular council, what happens is a group of people are chosen. A group of individuals are chosen from the different races of Middle-earth. And they are going on this journey to try to solve the problem of Middle Earth. And they're called the the Fellowship of the Ring. But there was a disagreement between those nine walkers. Do you remember the disagreement? The disagreement hinged on what was the true nature of the problem they faced. Of the nine chosen to take part in the fellowship, eight of them were convinced that the problem they faced in Middle Earth was not only the Dark Lord Sauron, but the ring itself. And then there was one member of the fellowship who was convinced that the problem was Sauron alone and that the ring was actually part of the solution. His name was Boromir. He was the mighty man of Gondor. He saw the ring as a gift to the foes of Mordor. Some of you know the quote, right? He thought that was the answer. He didn't want to destroy it. He wanted to use it. So he tried to take the ring by force. He was convinced that the ring of power, which everyone else saw as part of the problem, was actually part of the solution. And guess what? Boromir was wrong. Boromir had put his hope in an object that was never intended to be part of the solution to the problems of Middle Earth. And here's the the connection. When we look at the law as though it's part of our solution... We're doing the same thing. We're making the same mistake. The law is not the thing that's going to save us. When we put our hope, our trust, our confidence, and our own ability to keep the law to make us free from sin, we make the same mistake. But when we allow the law to do its proper work, it shows us our need of a Savior, and it drives us to Christ. So what does all this mean? A couple of things. Let me just summarize it. Number one, the law of God reflects God's goodness. And for those of us who look at the law and we say, man, that's hard. I don't know about all of this. I think the law should be more of a reflection of the things I like and the things I love. We don't have a really good understanding of God. 
We want to reform God in our own image, right? We want, to, we want to create a God that we can get our arms around. Why would you want a God like that? I want a God who is other than me. I want to understand a God who creates the world and everything in it. I want to understand a God who is transcendent, and yet in the same moment, he's, he's imminent, he's near. And when we look at the scriptures, it's not showing us a God who's a lot like us. It's showing us a God who's very different from us. The law of God reflects the goodness and the otherness and the holiness of God. The law is good in that it shows us that. It shows us his holiness. It outlines what God declares to be good and what he reveals to be evil in the universe that he has made. The commandments show us God in his beauty and holiness. They are good in that that way. The law of God also confronts our sinfulness. This is the part we don't like. It confronts our sinfulness. The mirror effect of God's law reveals that we don't measure up. To use Paul's language in Romans, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. The law reveals our sin because it puts a a spotlight on it. And we don't like that either because we like to hide those things about ourselves. And the law of God wants to drag it out into the open and, and expose it for what it is. So that we will be driven to the next point. The law of God leads us to Christ. And at this point, I want to go back to something I mentioned earlier during the time of the Exodus. And I know I've already referenced it. But God's grace to his people preceded the giving of the law. God didn't visit his people in Egypt and say, okay, here's this law. Now, if you guys can keep it, I'll come in and I'll save you and I'll get you out of this situation. He didn't say that at all. God came in and he began to move. God gave them a leader. God began to flex. God began to show his sovereignty over all things. He loved them while they were still in bondage. He he heard their cry. He freed them by the blood of the lamb. He led them out. He fought for them. And then, as they were going into the land that he had promised to give them, that they had not earned, he gave them his law and says, this is what's going to guide you as my people. This is what's going to mark you out from the world as being mine. This is how you're going to live in relationship to me. The Ten Commandments aren't instructions on how to get people out of Egypt. They are rules to help a free people stay free. Salvation is not the reward of obedience. Salvation is the reason for our obedience. And so when we as Christians look at the law and we allow it to do its work, to expose our sin, and we go back to Christ for our hope and our confidence, we also can live in such a way that that we know what God has told us. We know what his commandments look like, and we can please our Father. And that's how we live in in, in reflection to the law. So don't reject the law of God. Instead, let it do its work in your heart. Let God's word show you what is true about yourself, both the good and the bad. Let the law show you what your sin, sinful soul desperately needs. And then let the law drive you to the only remedy for your sin, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you for your word. And sometimes when we read your word, we, we see these things and, and we're not sure where they fit. I hope and pray that today we, we see a little more how your law fits into our lives, the different functions that it has in our lives. But, but ultimately, my hope is that your gospel is what's ringing in our hearts and in our ears. That we can understand that the law is for a purpose, and that purpose is to drive us to your arms, into your loving arms of grace and kindness. 
And so, Father, I pray even now in this moment that you would be working in the hearts of your people, that you would be working in every heart in this room to show us all our desperate need of Christ and that we would cling to him and him alone for our hope and our salvation. And this will not be an easy task. At least it's impossible for us, but what is impossible for man is very possible for you. So accomplish your purpose in the salvation of your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.